would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Beginning in verse 32 of chapter 9. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body said Tabitha arise and she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up then calling the saints and widows he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner you may be seated may God Encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your special grace on us as we look at this text. We think about your call on us and the relationships we have here in our church. And then also as as we participate in your supper here uh, in, in a little bit, we pray that you would create unity within our church that only you can create. And our relationships would bring glory and honor to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we looked at the story of, of Paul's conversion, arguably the most important conversion in the history of the church, certainly from a historical standpoint, the most significant conversion in the history of the world. Saul converts and becomes this, this amazing missionary for the Gospels we're going to see in the book of Acts. And so the story that we, look, that we looked at last week is a story that occurs three times in the book of Acts. It's this incredibly important story. And then next in the book of Acts, after this text, there are going to be this, this, the stories of the Gentiles converting. And so that, that begins in chapter 10. So these are also just incredibly significant stories that we're about to to study together. So on either side of the text this morning, there are these watershed moments in the life of the church and, and really in the, in the history of humanity, even from a secular standpoint, just these incredibly important stories. And then you have these two stories. And the question then is, well, what, what exactly is Luke trying to do here? These are some stories that are often overlooked even one of the commentaries that I was reading this past week, as it kind of summed up the events in this section of the book of Acts, it didn't even mention these two stories here about Peter and what he does before he encounters Cornelius in the next chapter. When I was a little kid, maybe it was 
super little, maybe about 10 years old or so, I went to visit my grandparents. And we went to this, this church in kind of rural Arkansas, and we went to the Sunday school class, and, and I was in the Sunday school class with maybe one other kid, and the, the Sunday school teacher came in, and she had the, the quarterly that they, they taught through, and she had opened it up, and she said, okay, this, this morning we're looking at the story of, of Dorcas, and, and uh, now, now you guys don't know that story. I said, well, yeah, I, I know that story. She said, no, you don't know that story. It's a small story. You know, you don't, you don't. I said, no, 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 uh, uh, Peter, in that story, Peter, God used Peter to, to bring Dorcas back to life. And the teacher was just incredibly impressed. She, she didn't know the story, and she was really impressed that I had heard of the story. And so she told my grandma, and you imagine how proud grandma was. My, son knows, uh, my grandson knows the story. Then she told mom and dad, and mom and dad were really impressed. Now, I didn't tell them why I knew the story. And if you're 10 years old or about 10 years old, you know why I remember the story of Dorcas, right? I mean, I'd heard the story of Dorcas, and I, I always thought Dorcas must have it pretty rough. And Imagine me teasing her for having a name like Dorcas. Uh, so I didn't tell mom and dad that. They just, you know, super spiritual son, knowing these obscure stories. But this, this is a story we don't turn to very often. You, you read the story of Saul, then you get the story of the Gentiles, and so you don't spend a lot of time thinking about these stories. So why does, why does Luke spend some time here talking about, about these, these two incidences of, of Peter as he travels in western Judea? I'm not, not totally sure exactly why he does. There's a lot of things we can glean from this. I mean, obviously here we're learning some more about evangelism. We're learning about the power of the Spirit. We're seeing God confirming Peter's ministry and the apostolic ministry. There's, there's a lot of things here. But if you, if you notice, if you look at the text, verse 31 that we looked at last week that kind of concludes the last story and serves as a transition, verse 31 says the church... Throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. And, and then it tells us these two stories and then it starts talking about what happens with, with Peter's ministry in Joppa. I think what we're seeing here are, are some snapshots of the church at peace and, and growing and being prepared for the ministry that God has for her. In fact, there are a lot of things we could focus on as we look at these stories, but here's kind of the main idea that I want us to think about together as we look at this story together this morning. Here's the, the main idea I want us to think about. A church with healthy relationships is a church prepared for world-shaking gospel proclamation. Here's a church at peace, a church that the Holy Spirit is, is working in, and it's a church that God is preparing to do some, some incredible things through. The church is about to enter into some very tumultuous times, but God in his grace provides this time of, of strengthening for the church, and, and the relationships are good, and the relationships are healthy, and God does some amazing things in the, the churches in the coming chapters. And so what I want us to do is just spend some time looking at some snapshots here of some characteristics that are true of, of churches that are healthy relationally. And by the way, these are, these are some characteristics that don't cause relational health. They're, 
They're the fruit of the relational health. They're things that are happening as a church is relationally healthy. In other words, we're not going to say, okay, these are the things that a church that is relationally healthy does. Therefore, we need to do these things to become relationally healthy. No, what happens is God, in his grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, creates, creates relational health in a church. And then, as a church has relational health, these are the things that we see taking place in the church. And by the way, I believe God in his grace has created at Bethany Community Church healthy relationships by and large. God in his grace has created a time of relational health in our church, and we're grateful for that. We see these things taking place in our church. We're pursuing these things, but as we pursue these things, we recognize it's God granting them to us. And I believe this this could mean that, that God is preparing Bethany Community Church for world-shaking gospel proclamation for community-altering gospel witness. Certainly, that's what we're praying for. And as we look in the coming weeks and months at the story of evangelism and, and Peter and Cornelius, we look at Paul and Barnabas engaging in missionary journeys, there should be within us a, a passion, a fervent desire to see God use us to proclaim the good news of his son, Jesus. But this morning, we're looking at some snapshots of what's taking place in a church that's prepared to engage in this type of ministry. So let's, let's dive in here, and let's look at the first characteristic here. Number one, a relationally healthy church engages in discipleship. A relationally healthy church engages in discipleship. A church that's relationally healthy isn't just coming together to talk about our latest hobbies or interests. A church understands the relationships within her exist for the purpose of discipleship. And again, let's look at what's happening in the text. Peter is traveling around, and we're going to see him in, in western Judea. He's going to be near the, near the coast, near the Mediterranean coast, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean coast this morning. And he's in this area, and it says in verse 32 that he's traveling here and there. And so there are some Christians who are already in these communities to which he's traveling. Remember, we saw Philip's ministry. We saw other people who had been scattered because of the persecution that struck the church in Jerusalem. They've scattered to some different regions, and they've been proclaiming the gospel as they go. And what happens in the book of Acts whenever the gospel is proclaimed? Apostles and others will go into an area, they'll proclaim the gospel, and then people will respond to the gospel, and then the apostles will go into that region, and as they go in the region, they'll engage in discipleship. So, for example, later in Acts chapter 11, it's going to describe the spread of the gospel in Antioch, and then we're going to read that the report of the, the gospel being spread in Antioch came to the church in Jerusalem, and what do they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. He came and he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great number of people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So what happens? Christians are, are converted in a region. The apostles go and they... They train people, spend a lot of time teaching people about the faith. And that's what's happening here. 
uh, Peter goes into this, this region. It's going to tell us here in verse 32, he comes to Lydda. And that, that's a, a town about, I think about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, northwest. And so it's in between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. And he's going to be there, and then he's going to be in the, in the town of Joppa, which is on the coast itself, kind of where modern-day Tel Aviv is. And, and that's, that's what Peter's doing. He's going into this community, it says, and, and he's, he's engaging in discipleship. One commentator called this passage discipleship training. Now, why does he do this? Why would Barnabas and Paul spend an entire year in Antioch teaching? Why is Peter going here and there? where The, the gospel's already there. People have already believed in Jesus why, why spend the time in, engaging in the teaching? The reason is because there's more to the Christian life than just that initial decision to, to place one's faith in Jesus Christ as we recognize his lordship. Remember last week we saw Saul recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a person is converted, as a person recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ, they recognize that they need to, to walk according to the way. We talked about that last week. And walking according to the way in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ means knowing some things. These people have just placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and, and now, now they're surrounded by people who are not living their lives in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are surrounded by people who have different views than they do about about who Jesus is and are, are living their lives according to the different gods that they worship. And now these new Christians have, have questions. Okay, I, I want to live in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so I'm, I have decisions about how to, how to parent. I have decisions about how to view other people who are unsaved. I have decisions to make about how to view my, my work in light of the fact that the kingdom of, of God is coming, is here, and is, is going to come someday in its, its fullness in the future. And and Christ is going to return, and so how do I view my finances, and how do I view my relationships with my parents, and how do I view relationships with siblings and, and work, and, all, and how, do I, how do I live this life, and what's necessary? Discipleship. There's a need for people to come alongside us as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and say, okay, here's how you live. Here's how you view parenting. Here's, here's how you take Scripture, God's Word, and, and what it says, and, and understand what it means to, to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your workplace, when you're surrounded by other people who don't necessarily love the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how you view family members who are hostile to the gospel. Here's how you still love them at the same time, stand firm in your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is necessary. And that's what Peter is engaging in. He comes to the saints here. He's encouraging them there in the faith. Now you say, hold on, I don't know about this, Daniel. What do you mean? In our church, we have what we call the three M's, membership, maturity, and multiplication. We, we believe that it's, it's important for every Christian to, first of all, engage in membership, to, to recognize the need to be a part not only of the 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 universal body of Christ, but the, the local church to, to commit to relationship here. So we encourage people to engage in membership. And then we don't think it's that, that's all there is to the Christian life. We think there's also this process of maturity where all of us should be growing in our faith. And we grow in our faith as we learn more and as we serve others. There's this maturity that takes place in the Christian life. 
And then we also believe that it's important to, to multiply. We believe that discipleship is an essential element of the Christian life. You should be engaged in teaching other people about how to live in obedience to God. You say, well, Daniel, wait a minute. I don't know barely anything about the Christian life. I certainly have not arrived where I need to in the Christian life. And if you knew the areas that I struggle in, you would say, hey, you stay away from other Christians, not you engage in a relationship with other Christians. And to which I would say, well, maybe there's some areas of ministry you shouldn't be engaging in, but all of us should be involved in, in striving for at least some level of discipleship. We do this in other areas of our life. We haven't attained perfection, and yet we instruct others. I'm trying to do kind of a, at least a monthly house project with, with the boys. And, and as you know, uh, I get lots of sermon illustrations from my house projects. It's not something I'm naturally gifted in. This is an area where I have to, have to watch YouTube videos on how to do things, right? This last week, we were running wiring through the, the walls in our, our house. And there are a lot of holes now in, in the, in the drive. And so I was teaching the boys, okay, here's how you, here's how you put a hole in the wall, which they're way ahead of me on. Like that did not, that didn't take a lot of instruction. Uh, but here's how you make a neat hole in drywall. That was the new thing for them. And, and then, uh, and then here's how you know. Here's how you take an old piece of drywall and score it and put it on there and and show them how to do that a couple times. And then and then they did it and 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 theirs were better than mine. But it's not a contest as I keep keep telling them. But you know that's not something, not something I'm naturally. But I'm, that's not a process of discipleship, of mentoring. We do it in the our other areas of our life, we should be doing it in our spiritual life as well. That's what Peter's doing. We see here, we're going to see some more practical things perhaps this morning than, than we might typically look at, but just practically, two things should be true of you if you are a growing Christian. One, you should be being discipled. You should be looking for relationships with, with people who can help you understand about living the Christian life. You're not looking for other people who are perfect, but you're looking for other people who are committed to walking in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's someone who's just a little bit older than you. Maybe someone who is, who's been single and now is married. You say, well, I'm single. I want to be around someone that, is, that has gone through what I've gone through. Or someone that maybe hasn't gone through what I've gone through, but is committed to the, the Word of God and has, has thought about these things. Maybe, maybe someone who's done parenting a little bit longer than you. So if, if you're a growing Christian, number one, you need to be discipled, pursuing relationships in which discipling can take place. And number two, you know where I'm going with this, you need to be discipling others. You say, well, Dana, I, I don't know, how can I develop relationships with, like, with, with people like that? Well, you need to be someone who's pursuing the truth, knowing true things, studying God's word, learning things, reading other books, or listening to podcasts, or maybe a YouTube videos of, of solid teachers, and then practicing the truth, living that out, serving in ministry, engaging in, in life, and then bringing other people along with you. You should never be doing ministry alone. Maybe you're involved in, maybe it's through care groups or a Bible study, or maybe you get involved in our biblical counseling ministry where you just kind of sit in the room and observe counseling taking place, and then you or maybe you receive that counseling, and then you kind of move into helping others apply God's word in hard situations in, in their life. I encourage you, talk, talk to an elder. Talk to a care group leader. Love to help you in that process of learning to disciple other people. In a healthy church, relationally healthy church, we're going to be engaging in discipleship. Number two, a relationally healthy church 
ministers to people with, with disabilities. And I, I don't just mean physical disabilities or people who are differently abled in, in our church. I mean people with all sorts of different kinds of, of struggles that we might have, physical, spiritual, emotional, uh, mental health issues. We're aware of people who are differently abled, and we value people from different circumstances than we ourselves and backgrounds than we ourselves have. So look at what goes on in the story. Verse 33, as Peter goes around to the, the churches, remember he's engaged in strengthening the, the, the churches, and it's within the churches that he finds a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, and the reason that he'd been bedridden and restricted in his movements was through some form of paralysis. And Peter, as he sees him, says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And those who are outside the church, the residents of Lydda and Sharon, see him and they turn to the Lord. So it's, he's within the church and then he's without the church, see what happens, and they, they turn to the Lord. Now, why is this remarkable? I think it's remarkable because notice where Peter finds Aeneas. It's not it doesn't seem, at least from the text, he doesn't find him outside begging for alms. He's not outside some gate. He's, he's within the church. The church has, has brought Aeneas in. In this culture, there aren't the, the legal and the, the societal protections that, that our culture provides for people who have different abilities. But here, here it's the church that steps forward, and here's a person who doesn't have the resources to care for themselves, and the church steps up. The church here is remarkable for their inclusion of those from a variety of different circumstances, and the church, of course, as we go through the book of Acts, is going to continue to grow in that ability. Physical disabilities or differently abled people, people who have emotional struggles or, or uh, mental health issues or uh, different different spiritual struggles, all of us, all of us are included at the table of our Lord. All of us are welcome and recognized by the body. Relationally healthy church is ministering to people who, wouldn't, who perhaps we wouldn't normally notice or be cognizant of. I'm reading a book right now with some men on Friday morning called The Compelling Community. And in the book, the authors describe two different types of communities that can exist in a church. One is what he calls the, the gospel plus community. He says, in this type of community, there's, there's good relationships, but these relationships aren't based on just the gospel. It's the gospel, but really it's something else. It's the gospel plus something else. And so they may all say the same thing about Jesus, but really the relationships are based on the fact that we're the same age or that we have the same type of educational experience or that we're from the same cultural background, or we both, uh, we, we both like the same sports teams, or we have the both, both have the same interest in some sort of social issue. That's the, the gospel plus community. But then the, there's also communities that are gospel, what, he calls, what they call gospel-revealing communities. And, and listen to what they write about gospel-revealing communities. In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and the power of the gospel, either because of the depth of care for each other or because two people in a relationship have little in common but Christ. Now, of course, it is not wrong 
to be friends with people who are like us. And that's going to happen very often within the context of the church. And it's very helpful, right, to have friends who are kind of going through some of the same life experiences that we are. But what the argument of compelling community is, is that our relationships ultimately, foundationally, are based not on our, our shared external commonalities, but, but upon our shared commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we have that common commitment, our relationships are going to be much deeper, and there's going to be a gospel ground of our relationships that causes us to be aware of people from different circumstances and need. There are many people who are in need of inclusion in the body of Christ at Bethany Community Church. And my encouragement, thinking practically here this morning, my encouragement to you would be to, to, to be a person who is aware of the potential barriers of entry to worship at Bethany Community Church. So you, as, you, as you look around and say, okay, it's very easy perhaps for me to, to come in and to engage in worship. I've been here for a number of years. I know people. It's, it's easy for me to, to make my way to my seat and, and so forth. But to ask yourself, okay, if I wasn't me, if I was someone else, what sort of barriers to entry for worship would there be for me? If I was a if I was a mom who was bringing her kids here, what sort of barriers of entry would, would make it harder for me to engage in the joy of worship here? Maybe as you, as you look, you say, okay, but you know, it's, it's hard to get in from that parking lot in, into the, the nursery. And you, you see a mom coming in with, with all her kids and bags and, and like her, her baby made of bricks, you know, and that carrier. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to help. You know, I'm going to, don't, don't grab her baby without asking, you know, but you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going I'm to help her do what, I need, what she needs to help find her the rooms and help get her stuff and her kids where they need to go. I'm going to be aware of, of what are the barriers to entry of other people enjoying worship. I'm going to be involved in nursery and, and children's ministries so that the parents and, and children can feel like this is a, a great place to worship and, and know and love the Lord. I'm going to be involved. I'd encourage you to be involved in the buddy program. The buddy program is a, a wonderful ministry that, that has need of, of people right now to come alongside uh, different people and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Bethany Community Church a place where these people feel loved and welcomed, even though they may not be experiencing the worship service in the same way that I am on a weekly basis. I want to be a person that's aware of those needs. That's going to be true in a relationally healthy church. Number three, a relationally healthy church teams with good works. That, that word teams means it's, it's full of, it's bristling with, it's, it's, it's consumed with these, and, and you can find just uh, overflowing examples of good works. And now we turn to the story of Tabitha, or translated Dorcas, and both those names mean deer, gazelle. Tabitha is like her, the Aramaic form of her name, and then Dorcas is the Greek version so it says in verse 36, in Joppa, there's a disciple named Tabitha. Joppa is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea there. Peter arrives there, and he, there in that community, there's, there's Tabitha. She's a disciple, and her life is characterized as a follower of the way, as someone who's full of good works, and acts of charity. So perhaps she's a wealthy person, or, or at least a generous person. Acts of charity are like giving alms to people who are poor. And her whole life is characterized by, by good works. In verse 39, it says that the widows are going to show Peter tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. 
healthy relationships in a church, when the, the church is at peace, as verse 31 tells us, things are going well, the Holy Spirit is at work, what's going to happen? A relationally healthy church is not just focused on, okay, what is this church going to give me? But, and what are these relationships, what do they have in it for me? But a, a healthy church is going to be a church that teems with good works. In other words, there's an external awareness of, of this, and a desire to, to care for others. That's what's happening in a relationally healthy church. It teems with good works. The most important people in a church often are those who are just quietly living lives of, of service for others. For those of you who are part of a Bethany Baptist Church uh, some years ago, maybe before you came here to Bethany Community Church and spent any time there, you would, you would know the name, maybe you wouldn't, uh, the, the name's Bill and Juanita Kurtz, just faithful, faithful servants of the Lord, served in young children's ministry for, I don't know, 40 years, I don't know, th- over 35 years, so a very, very long, long time, faithful ministry of serving, maybe longer than that, serving the, the children served as uh, custodians in the church for a long period of time. I came to church, to Bethany Baptist when I was in my early 20s, and here's this couple in their 70s who are cleaning my office. You know, it was very, very embarrassing. You know, like, I, boy, I, I should be helping you guys, but they're just very, very faithful. And, you know, if, if our final rewards are based on comparative works, <laughs> I wouldn't mind being Bill and Juanita in the in, as they appear before the Lord. Juanita passed away a few years ago. Bill turns 90 uh, this, this month, by God's grace. He's in Arizona near his son, Tim. But that's, that's what we want, right? We want a church where we're, we're Bill and Juanitas. We're aware of needs of others. We're just kind of quietly, faithfully serving other people. You say, well, how? How, how do I grow my ability to do that? Again, just kind of thinking practically, I, I'd encourage you to, to, to be aware. Growing your awareness of this. You know, I think of... Uh, for example, the, self, the Serving Others Selflessly Ministry, SOS, you can find it on our website. It's uh, led by Gene Lehman, and you can go and you can contact Gene and say, Gene, what sort of needs exist in the church? Put me on a list. I'm, I'm ready to serve when you need me. There's a, a couple just a few weeks ago had an issue with, with mold in their house, and just overwhelming to think about that issue, and, and they were kind of thinking, okay, how do we handle this, and all the other things that are going on in life, and they, they talked to their care group leader, what did their care group leader do? Their care group leader said, okay, we're going to get together, contacted Gene, boom. A couple, with, within a couple of days, like before I could respond to the email uh, to help out, Gene already had a, a team together and, and was, you know, knocking things uh, literally uh, together. And everyone was glad I wasn't uh, the one knocking holes, right? Uh, that's, that's, um, that's what happens in a relationally healthy church. And I encourage you to be involved in t- contacting Gene God would lay that on your heart, serving others selflessly. That, even if it's not that ministry, all of us should be involved in ministries like that. Number four, a relationally healthy church enjoys deep relationships. A relationally healthy church enjoys deep relationships. And so in other words, what I mean is not just we share really significant things with one another, but our relationships are, are grounded in the gospel and there's, there's a, a gospel depth to these relationships that causes us to be close. What happens to Dorcas? It says in verse 37, and we're going to look at the next three characteristics with these, these verses. We're going to see three things that kind of go together here. But number four, it's deep relationships. It says, in those days she became ill and died. They wash her, they lay her in an upper room. And as you, you see their care for her, you recognize these relationships have, 
have gone deep. There's a deep mourning for her. There's a, an interconnectedness to life that's this gospel focus as they meet one another's needs. There's deep relationships that exist in these healthy churches. The church family here is caring for people like a, a physical family would. Now, how do you foster relationships like this? Again, let's, let's think practically. One, there should be a, a width, a width to our relationships with one another. There should be, as you, as you look around at Bethany Community Church, you should say, okay, my, my relational obligations are wide. For those who call Bethany Community Church their church home, I have a responsibility to these as my, as my family members. I want to be involved in their lives. I want to know that the people that I'm, I'm responsible for spiritually. But there's also a, a depth. There, there's a depth that I say, okay, and, and as God brings certain people into my life, there's going to be a depth that I go into with, with others. I'm going to be involved in, in service with others. If you're not involved in a ministry, it becomes very difficult to, to go deep in relationships. I'm going to practice hospitality. I'm going to participate in, in fellowship opportunities like, like care group and Sunday school. I'm going to read things with other people and, and talk about what I'm reading and thinking about and participate in, in, in serving and be a gracious person as I think about my relationships with other people. Excuse me, it's not COVID. I took a rapid test on Thursday at a gas station, and uh, he said 50-50. No, I did, I did take it. I'm, I'm good. I mean, it's something else terrible, but it's not COVID. It's not. Okay, allergies. Uh, maybe. Number five. <laughs> Number five. A relationally healthy church experiences sorrow. Okay. A relationally healthy church experiences sorrow. Without deep relationship, there's no sorrow. But unfortunately, with deep relationship, there's always sorrow. Isn't that sad? There's a care they show for Dorcas. There's, there's this careful care they show for her body. And the, the loss of her presence is tangible. You see these women showing Peter, the things that Tabitha has made them and saying, look how wonderful she was. And there's this clear, clear loss. There's this presence that's no longer in their lives that they, they mourn. As the queen once, one time said, grief is the price we pay for love. That's Queen Elizabeth, not the band queen. Uh, grief is the price we pay for love or uh, for you, you younger people, uh, vision from the Marvel series WandaVision. Uh, what is grief if not love persevering? So without love and the continued presence of it, we wouldn't experience grief. In other words, there's this, there's this presence of grief that's inevitable when relationships go deep. And, and if you've been a, a part of Bethany Community Church for any length of time, or really any family for any length of time, you know the truth of this. I look back at pictures from 20 years ago when I came, and I, I can see, oh man, that, that person is no longer with us because of cancer. There's that terrible accident, and, and that person is, or their family is no longer with us. Uh, these people have 
you know, due to, due to old age and just the reality of, of the shortness of life are, are no longer with us. And it, with each year, with each year that the sorrow increases, right? Because more people are, are, are going to be lost. It's reality. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Think about even marriage. We entered into the marriage covenant knowing that if we are faithful to the vow, there's going to be incredible pain when separation through death takes place in the future. It's true for all relationships in which fervent, deep love exists. Relationally healthy church is going to experience that. But that brings us to the next point here. Number six, a relationally healthy church also is going to hope in the resurrection. It's interesting here that the, the ladies and, and the, the church, what they're doing here with, with Peter and with, with Dorcas, and they, they tell them to come quickly, and they're telling Peter about the, the beautiful things that Dorcas has done and the, the things that she's made them and the way that she's cared for them. And Peter puts the people outside, he kneels down, and he prays, and he says, Tabitha, arise, and, and she, 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 she gets up and she sees Peter, he takes her hand, and she's presented alive, and so there's... There's this joy as well, right? Now, for the church that believes in the gospel and where churches are, are relationally healthy, what takes place? We recognize, okay, there is sorrow that awaits this church. For every one of us in this room, sorrow awaits unless the Lord returns very soon. Sorrow awaits. There's going to be loss of relationship. All the people in this room, and again, unless there's some sort of major medical breakthrough, are not going to be around in the next hundred years and and as, as, as time goes on, others, many of us are going to fall and, and are going to, 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 to sleep. There's going to be a loss. But as that happens, what also simultaneously happens, a church where the relationships are deep and healthy and rich continually points one another to the hope of the resurrection. And that motivates and spurs gospel proclamation. C.S. Lewis had a a wonderful, very famous quote. He talks about the loss of one of his friends, and and he's talking about how he lost, there's a group of friends, he says, okay, one friend named Charles died, and he says, okay, now that Charles has died, I've also lost a little bit of Tolkien. He was another member of that that group. He says, because now I can no longer watch how Tolkien is going to laugh at one of Charles's jokes. So Charles goes, I don't have more of Tolkien, I have less. That's true in the church. As, as we die, as we lose people, we, we don't have more of the people who have remained. Sometimes we have less of them because we don't see that interaction anymore. But listen what else Lewis would go on to write as he talks about heaven. He says, Friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the, scripture, the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we sh- thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. In a church that's relationally healthy, that's proclaiming the gospel, that's engaging in discipleship, these relationships are going to go deep. And as they go deep, we're going to experience sorrow because of loss. But as we experience sorrow, there's going to be hope in the resurrection because we recognize that we're going to understand more and more of God and his character and his presence in our relationships with one another in eternity. And that is a hope. 
And it spurs us, as we'll see in weeks ahead, to gospel proclamation. That brings us to the last thing I want us to think about this morning as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. A relationally healthy church sees conversions. A relationally healthy church, a church that by God's grace is experiencing peace and the work of the Holy Spirit, is also going to see others placing their faith in Jesus Christ. The hope of the resurrection during this time of the apostolic period, that the future of the kingdom is seen in the present, that the future kingdom of God is being realized partially in the presence as the apostles' ministry is vindicated. In fact, what Peter's doing here is similar to what Jesus did in Luke 5 and 7 and, and, and what Elijah would do in 1 Kings and, Eli- and Elisha would do in 2 Kings 4. The result here of that ministry is many believing in the Lord, believing in the Lord. and Luke kind of sets up the next scene as Peter stops in Joppa, stays with the tanner. We're going to continue talking about evangelism in a few weeks, and we're going to even pass out a book on evangelism for you to kind of think through if, if you want that. But I want to read just a couple quotes from that book. It's called Evangelism by, Mike, by Mac Stiles, and just a few quotes to kind of whet, whet your appetite. Listen to what Stiles writes as he talks about a a church with a culture of evangelism versus just having evangelistic programs. He says, the fact is, most people come to faith. How do most people come to faith? Most people come to faith through the influence of family members, small group Bible studies, or a conversation with a friend after a church service. So most people in our church who came to faith did not come to faith by hearing me or someone else in a sermon proclaim the gospel. Some did, but that's not the normative way. Christians intentionally talking about the gospel with one another, with other people, is how most people come to faith in Christ. And later he writes this. He says, I would happily trade all the pizzazz of stunning speakers, thank you, mind-blowing music, and wildly popular Easter pageants for a culture for a culture of evangelism in which people are trained to lead a Bible study with a non-Christian in the Gospel of Mark, point to the messages of the Gospel in the text, and urge the unbeliever to come to Jesus based on the truth of what he's learned from the Scriptures. That's a culture of evangelism. In a healthy church, you're going to see that. Our church is at a really special time, I think. You know, over, the, over the last few weeks, months, people have asked me, Boy, what, what's God doing in our church? As we come out of this, this hard time of COVID and separation, we come together, it seems like, it seems like God is, is doing it. We're seeing more people numerically, perhaps, but, but something else is going on. What, what, what is God doing? And, and I, I don't know for sure what God's future plans for our church are, but, but here's my hope. My hope is that God has given us this time of, of relational health, of, of love for one another, of course, so we can be preparing one another for, for eternity, but also so that we can be bringing more people, by God's grace and work, into this community of faith so they can know and love and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in short, I hope that God is preparing our church for a time of, of growth in local and, and global gospel proclamation. World-shaking, community-altering gospel conversions. 
And that's absolutely what God can do by his grace. And I would encourage you to pray for that with me. In fact, let's now prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is, is open to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of Bethany community. We do ask you to be a member of, uh, or encourage you to be a member of a local church, or maybe working towards membership at a local church. And if you didn't grab a, a communion uh, cup as you came in, you can feel free to, to grab that, that now. They're on the, on the back there. Um, it's open again just to all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, as we uh, take the Lord's Supper together, we're proclaiming our unity. We're proclaiming that we are, are one through the work of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if, if, if you say, you know what, um, I know that in general relationships may be healthy at, at large, but there are some relationships that are not healthy in my life with others who would call themselves followers of Christ, I would encourage you as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would confess that to the Lord. That you would commit to the Lord now, Lord, I've, I've sinned in this, or I've been sinned against and reluctant to forgive. I desire to, to forgive and to be in relationship with, and I, I'm committing, as I partake of the Lord's Supper, to live out the truth of what I'm proclaiming through the work of your Spirit. I, I'm committing by your grace, and it's as possible with me to restore these relationships as we think about what God has called us to to prepare us for gospel proclamation. So let me pray with us as we would ask God for that. Father, we recognize that the relationships we enjoy are only by your grace. And we pray as we partake of your supper that we would be truly proclaiming our unity in your Son and there'd be no deception in us. And Father, we pray even now that you'd bring to our our mind and our heart, just an awareness of ways that we have, have failed to pursue the, the relational unity that you, would have us have, that you would have us enjoy through our faith in your Son, Jesus. We just pray that we would be aware of that now and we confess some of those failures to you even now as you bring them to our minds and hearts. Father, we are completely dependent upon your son, Jesus, for all aspects of life, for our existence, for our joy, for obedience. And we would ask that you would uh, give us continued fellowship with you, deeper fellowship with you through our continued trust in your son. We confess just our relational sins to you, sins of gossip, sins of, of critical spirits, sin of, of anger, selfishness in relationship. Forgive us for those things, Father. And if we have, we have damaged relationship, we commit to you this morning as you bring those to our awareness, we commit to you a willingness to do what we can to restore those things and, and to pursue that. Please enable us to fulfill that commitment 
And as others have wronged us, Father, we release them from the obligation to, to pay us back. We release them from, from the debt they owe toward us and, and recognize their ultimate debt is to you, that you have taken care of and, and, and paid for with the death of your son, Jesus. And, and who are we to diminish the sacrifice of your son? And so we, we pray if, if someone else has perhaps sinned against us and doesn't desire to restore that relationship, we pray that you'd work in their hearts, not, not for our glory or, or so that we would look good, but so we can experience the closeness you desire for your people. As we partake of your supper, we pray that the things that we are proclaiming would be true. There'd be no deceit found in us. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you'd take off the first layer of your cup, take the wafer with me, prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. The night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, Jesus broke the bread. And, and when he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you'd prepare to partake of the cup with me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Father, we thank you again for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him and in him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.